0: And welcome to another episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. You demanded it. You said, Jesse, one episode with the man, Arlen Schumer, isn't enough. When are you going to have him back on? And I said, hey, Arlen, you want to come back? And he said yes. So, Arlen, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Jesse. It's great to be here.
0: It is so great to have, I got a lot of great feedback of your last episode, Um, everyone, the big word is passionate, they just love your passion, and you know, if only I
1: could monetize that passion, (laughs) I'd be the richest man in the
0: world, absolutely, Uh, so you doing okay? I'm doing great, thanks. That's good, that's good, and we talked a little bit before we hit record, you're going to do a new radio show, you're going to give us some more information about that as that gets more in there, and I'm excited about that.
1: Yeah, I got uh, two hours of internet radio time whenever I want to do it. So I've got five webinars coming up in September, and the fifth one is actually October 2nd, but it's in the same week in a sense. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, And I'm able to schedule two hours of internet radio time before each of those five webinars in order to drive ticket sales, obviously, on the one hand. But also it gives me a chance to kind of supplement because yeah. the webinar, I'm showing images and video clips and whatever. Yeah. Especially with Bruce, I'll be showing yeah. video clips and yeah. Uh, you know, in addition to my image clips. So uh, to be able to have two hours of radio time, which is audio only, no no yeah. Uh, like zoom like video. Mm-hmm. So it's classic talk radio, and but I'm going to be able to get, you know, hopefully some pretty, if all goes well, people that actually. Worked, you know, with Bruce during the, during the darkness era. Now I'm saying that now to you, that may not happen. Who so, knows?
0: Yeah. Everything. But, going.
1: but if, yes. And then, in, you know, in addition, because I've got two hours, I want to have somebody like you coming yeah. on and giving me your perspective of the evening we're going to talk about, which is something
0: yeah,
1: I've directly experienced, whereas you have only experienced like you only can. In yeah. a sense, secondhand.
0: So this leads you to my question. Yes. So Arlen Schumer, if Jesse you Jackson. could pick one yes. night that is the greatest Bruce Springsteen show of all times, what night would that be?
1: Well, interesting you ask, since that's the whole subject <laughs> – Of my webinar, and I told you I was going to give you a softball. Softball, Softball—that's more like a gutter ball in bowling that you're lobbing down the, you know, the gutter. (laughs) Okay, I could answer this softball question. In the same way that when a hitter who's used to fastball, or hardball, yeah. he gets a softball, he can sit and actually think about it. now where do I want to hit the softball? <laughs> do I wanna hit it left field? Do I want to hit opposite field? Yes. Do I wanna bloop it up? You know. How do I answer that question? Let me count the ways. Okay. I'm gonna try the the macro to the micro. Okay. The macro answer is all of this is subjective. It's like discussing art in general. Yes. There is no best. There is no worst. They're, they're in the end. And then there are the factors if you were actually at the show. And then there are factors within factors. But what if you were at the show but in the back row Yeah. versus up close? Completely different experience. Not that Bruce – Isn't the greatest live rock and roll performer where if you're in the back row, you were still on your feet dancing. And that's why Bruce is Bruce. Yeah. So with that said, as a kind of caveat. Yeah. But when Dylanologists get together. Don't you think they debate what was his greatest show? Absolutely. And supposedly it's the Royal Albert Hall 1966 show. In which a snippet of film, I think, exists, and it's very dark, and that's where somebody yells Judas, the famous incident, and because he was a traitor to the folk cause. Right. But I'm sure Dylanologists debate oh, no, 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 that wasn't his greatest show. I saw him in 1987 open up for the Grateful Dead, you know, or the Grateful Dead opened up for whatever. Yeah. And they get in debate. You don't think they do that with The Grateful Dead. You don't think they do that with Led Zeppelin or The Who or any of the great bands. Listen, I know a Frank Sinatra expert in New York City. He's the guy that got me this gig to do these webinars with New York Adventure Club. And you don't think they debate what was Sinatra's greatest show?
0: Absolutely.
1: So in a way, this is both high and low culture. It's high in the sense that, Art historians of every genre, of every medium, they get together literally and verbally in print, or yeah. they they create consensus. They discuss why this work is greater than this other work. And the more educated you are, and, oh, I have a degree in Nat King Cole, you yeah. know what I mean? That you can discuss sure. why this performance by Nat King Cole is better than that one. But, of course, the word better Always is going to have quotes. Exactly. Well, and so the reason. So what that, this is the prep. That's like yeah. the preamble to all my answer. Remember, right. I said I macro know. to micro. I
0: know. Hang on. So the reason we're doing this is, um, Arlen is going to make the case that a certain show is in the discussion. Of the greatest show of all times, and this is going to be—we're going to experience it. Um, he is doing a webinar. It's coming up on Friday, September 18th, 12 o'clock Eastern Time, which means it's going to be a great time for our friends in the UK. Yes. And, and so, and also, what's nice is if you buy a ticket, you also can see the film version of it. So let's say this is—let's say you're stuck at well, the office. Oh, it's a live
1: recording right. of it. Right. Yeah,
0: and you're going to be able to see that for a week or so, right?
1: Right, for an entire week, so the point yeah. is a lot of people think with a webinar if they can't make it live, yeah, then they're not going to buy a ticket and by the way, the ticket's only ten dollars, so right. it's a, it's a cheap ticket, but believe yeah. me, it's nice yeah and and the thing is is that yeah um a record- a lo- a recording of the live webinar when you go to watch it at your leisure for the following week, yeah, it, because of the nature of recording a webinar. It's as if it's live for you.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So so that's what's really great about, you know, the silver lining in this pandemic cloud is that I at least have been able to do these webinars, which I used to do live in front of audiences, but this is sort of the next best thing in a way. And with something like a Bruce Springsteen historical concert, we are blessed by the fact that John Sher, the great promoter and owner of the Capitol Theater, which is no longer there. They tore it down, and it should have been declared a national landmark for the great rock and roll that was played there. But John Cher is still around. He still has Monarch Entertainment. He's still – I don't know whether he still works with the Grateful Dead or what's left with the Dead, but he's still around. And the point is, is, due to his prescience as a promoter and producer, he – Videotaped the entire show that is the show in question. And whether it was, I don't think it was videotaped in color, it was video this is pre-MTV, this is 1978. People who don't realize it, concerts before the 80s never had video screens. When you went to see a show. That was it. The screen, now that there were audio visuals for the band on the stage. Right. But the point is is the show wasn't being videotaped and shown on screens. Absolutely. And I'll so. never forget walking down the center aisle of the Capitol Theater, which is a small little old-fashioned theater. Maybe it seats 3000, 3500. I don't even know if that many. But it's a small place. And I'll never forget walking down the aisle and on the side of this theater-sized stage were two white square screens, not rectangles like you would expect the proportion of a video screen. They were white squares. And I remember saying to myself, what the hell are those? Yeah. And it turns out I ended up with the sixth row seat to this, what ended up being what I claim is the single greatest show. And I'm in the sixth row with my other buddies from Rhode Island School of Design, where I was a sophomore at the time and I was art directing Thunder Road Bruce Springsteen's first fan magazine right so and then I ended up doing the marquee illustration for the Capitol Theater that John Scherer wanted commissioned because it was a homecoming for Bruce there were three shows Bruce had never played northern New Jersey as a like as Bruce Springsteen right he played Central and South Jersey but never Bergen County Or, right, where I I grew up in northern Mm -hmm. New Jersey. Right. And the point is, Bruce played that for the first time in John Cher, after the triumphant summer of darkness, which was the tour that reestablished Bruce, which gets into his history, that he was being written off as a whatever happened to Bruce Springsteen, because in those days, he hadn't been heard from since 1975, which in nineteen seventy eight was ancient history. Exactly. In those days, if you didn't have an album out every year, like right. that was the heyday of vinyl yeah. album music industry. Frampton comes alive in nineteen seventy six, sold a billion copies. Business was booming. And the point is, is I remember reading articles, whatever happened to Bruce Springsteen. Now nowadays artists release a record whenever, you know, four years past, five years, nobody cares.
0: So, Arlen, if
1: we don't yeah. want
0: to – I don't want to give away the store, and so obviously we're just going to hit the highlights. Um, and then you are going to – and I, I attended one of your last Springsteens, and it lasted almost as long as a Springsteen show.
1: But that's the point.
0: I, it was. It was great. I wasn't complaining. I'm I'm bragging. It sounds like you're no, a little complaining.
1: No, not at all. I'm yeah, just well, explaining. You know, that's, if this is the sound of you uh, being uh, rhapsodic, <laughs> I'd hate to hear what your complaining sounds like.
0: What I'm saying is you can give us a little taste. Of what you're going to talk about on the 18th without totally destroying the seminar. That's what I'm saying. You're going to well, give us a little
1: I'm taste. I'm not going to destroy it by talking about
0: it. Right. But, but yeah, what I'll ab- tell you basically well, yeah. what tell, I'm going to do. Tell me why this night is considered famous.
1: Okay. Now, because I'm a nice Jewish boy, when you just said, why is this night? Different from all other nights. That's what, <laughs> right. At Passover. Yes. Why is this night different from all other nights? Why are we eating bread that hasn't been leavened? Why are we eating bitter herbs? And you tell the story of Passover of the Exodus from Egypt. Absolutely. Okay. So Bruce is like the his first manager thought he was the Christ of rock and roll. He he mortgaged his house for Bruce because he thought he was literally and Bruce lived up to that, too, along with every other uh, claim that was made about him. He was the only new Dylan to become a new Dylan Absolutely. and go beyond Dylan, I believe. And that doesn't take anything away from Dylan. But I think Bruce is Dylan and beyond. Absolutely, And, uh, you know, he had to be the future of rock and roll. And gee, he became the future of rock and roll and. John Landau, who made the claim, like Joe Namath, predicting the Jets would win the Super Bowl, which, if you know anything about sports history, is still the greatest upset of all time, more than even the U.S. hockey team in 1980 with Russia. Even though everybody claims that was the greatest upset. The Jets were 16 or 17-point underdogs in the Super Bowl. They were from the AFL, which was considered the Pussy League. You know what I mean? I do. The Baltimore cults were this behemoth that was supposed to squash them like like a flea, like every James Bond villain talked about. (laughs) You are like a flea, Mr. Bond. Anyway, so why is this night different from all other nights? So – in my webinar, which is based on, you know, the live show I gave last year in New York City at a little cabaret theater I was doing live shows at. And it's a combination of still images, me talking about it, showing these images. And I show an image for almost every sentence that I speak. And then because, thank God, John shared videotaped, the single greatest show in Bruce's history. Gee, unlike every other major star like Dylan and some others, there aren't necessarily great live shows. Certainly not with the Beatles. Whenever they play live, there might be some clips here and there, but there's nothing definitive like, this is the Beatles' greatest live show, and we caught it. Now, some say the half hour on uh, the, the, the rooftop of Abbey Road Studios in 1969, could be considered the great live show. It was right when they, you know, quit in a way. But so uh, Bruce, that brings us to Bruce. I'm telling you, I'm going to go off on so many tangents, Jesse. You're going to have to okay. rein me back. I will. In.
0: I will, my friend. Okay.
1: So in my webinar, to answer your question, why this night? Why September 19th? Why? Why from the darkness tour, Bruce has have brilliant shows on every tour. But again, why this show at this time at the darkness on the edge of town tour. So in order to explain that and what I do with the webinar, it's like, I'm creating a live documentary in real time by showing images and video clips and talking about it because I was there. I'm also an eyewitness. I was in the sixth row of this show. So I'm both biased, but I'm also an eyewitness. So, and in a way, I have been telling the story ever since what will be 42 years ago on September 19th, because the show so blew my mind, to use a great colloquial expression, like every Bruce fan has a show that blew their mind, chances are it was the first time they saw Bruce. Yeah, Bruce and, was, and, you and know, yeah, blowing I, people's minds since 1973.
0: Yeah, and I agree, and I do think, and we're going to go back to this, but I, I th- I'm really glad you you preface this with that you there are going to be a personal experience where this is the greatest show for me. And, exactly. and, and and that is that is subjective and okay. and we want you to you will embrace that and love that. but but historically, but, there is yes. precedent and some evidence of this, if it isn't the greatest show, it's in the argument.
1: Right? Well, that's almost a given. I'm also a bit of a showman. My tongue is slightly in cheek when I make claims like Bruce's single greatest show. I'm also putting on a show, I'm charging admission. I'm also delivering a show. And what is my show about? My show is about backing up the, of course, outrageous claim that this is Bruce's greatest single show. But not only was it for me, and I've seen Bruce a zillion times, not as many, again, I don't keep score. But yeah, I've seen Bruce between 50 and 100 times. I don't, I don't keep ticket stubs. I'm not that kind of a fan. And there's always going to be in terms of quantity, always somebody that's seen him more. But like I've always said, Bruce has the longevity of a Dylan, of a Grateful Dead. And I'm sure it's the same thing amongst deadheads. Whenever you come into the Grateful Dead is when you become a fan, and that is legitimate for you. There's always going to be somebody that saw the dead earlier. I'll never forget the night at maybe the Meadowlands, could have been Madison Square Garden. I met a guy older than me who was at the gaslight in 1972 when Bruce performed the night after he met John Hammond, that video of which surfaced about 10 years ago on the Internet. And I'm talking to a guy that was there. So my point is you can never say I'm a better Bruce fan than you are because I saw him earlier. No. You know, I ha- I hate to bring politics, but these are like the nationalists who claim they're the real Americans because their immigrant parents got here before your immigrant parents. Yeah, exactly. But we're all immigrants, you a idiot.
0: Nation of immigrants, absolutely.
1: Ergo Okay. All Bruce fan, what do you say to the young Bruce fans that came into him with the Rising or came into him with Born in the USA? There's a zillion of those fans. The well, point is is everybody. Okay, so so I'm okay. building to a point here. Okay. So, what makes the Darkness era, the fans who came into him with Darkness I actually missed the Born to Run era, and there's a lot of reasons. My my youth at the time, the fact that the New York stations didn't play Bruce's first two albums, which pissed me off. I didn't come into Bruce until Born to Run itself in 1975. I miss. I was busy being an Elton John fan, and no offense to early Elton John. That's the Elton John I love. But the New York radio stations didn't play Bruce's first two albums because – they were pissed off that Mike Pell was too aggressive. And they punished the entire New York audience that did not know of Bruce. And because I was in North Jersey, I didn't hear Bruce until, um, you know, Born to Run, when Born to Run hit. And I will always blame those New York DJs for being so pissy. And not giving Mike Capella a break, that somebody as zealous as him, maybe there was something to this Bruce Springsteen. But people don't realize Bruce's initial audience was Philadelphia, Cleveland, Boston, not New York. How ironic.
0: Yeah, and by the way, um, Arlen is also a massive comic book historian, so he will get this reference. Um, I'm putting a footnote in as we would if we were in action comics, see issue number, Uh, see the earliest (laughs) episode with Arlen. Editor's note. Yeah, Yeah, editor's note. Go to, and you'll hear Arlen talk about the experience of hearing Born to Run the first time.
1: Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Right? So be sure and check that every
0: episode. Okay. So you've come to the end.
1: Okay. So back to darkness. So why this show? So as we kind of, Try to briefly recap. After Born to Run hit big and he was on the cover of time in his week, Bruce had the classic fall from grace, the classic lawsuit with the manager that so many bands and, and, you know, I mean, where do you begin with that? It, it, it was the classic story with Bruce. He didn't have control over his own music and Mike Appel. Here's a guy that thought he was the Christ of rock and roll. And he's suing him three years later. I mean, the irony, you can cut with a knife. So Bruce is not allowed to record in the studio after Born to Run. Here he's got this colossal album that bursts him on the scene. And instead of having the inevitable follow-up a year later, he's in court and he can't record. He can only play live. And he actually goes on this tour in 1976 and 77 that they ended up calling the Chicken Scratch Tour. Because the only way the band could make money is by playing live at the, you know, still relative. Remember, Bruce, until Darkness, was not playing arenas. He only started playing arenas with Darkness. But in 75, he's still playing a lot of colleges, a lot of smaller halls. He's not quite the national act even though he was able to play nationally and even go over to Europe and play those legendary Hammersmith Odeon shows, of which we have the complete record of the first night, which is actually, if you know your audio bootlegs, not the best night. As great as that night is, and we have it on video, on film, it's really the second night when he came back a week later. That's the show that Peter Gabriel was at, and it's the reason that – made him leave Genesis and go solo. That's the show that the Rolling Stones' first manager, Andrew Lou Goldham, was at. And he said he could almost see the torch of rock and roll being passed down from the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, to Bruce. And and last but not least, I believe it was Pete Townshend, or was it somebody else? He said it was the greatest live rock and roll show he had ever seen, second to Otis Redding. And that was the second night, which was on a bootleg. I bought it as a series of discs called London Calling, a pun on London Calling, obviously. But uh, seek that out, you Bruce fans that know your – because it's soundboard recording quality. And there are some definitive versions of things like Pink Flamingo, and every time you walk in the room. Okay. Um, anyway, I digress as always. So. Yes. Bruce disappeared from the scene, man. And I remember reading articles in 1977. Whatever happened to Bruce Springsteen? Right. And like I said, nowadays, to a younger audience listening to this podcast. Artists take five years between records and nobody cares. Right. But in that high-pressure, mid-'70s, vinyl record boom, where they're selling millions of units. Yeah. It's a different time. It was a whole different time, and Bruce was essentially written off. And what does he end up doing? He ends up writing and recording. When he finally settles with Appel in 77, he goes back in the studio and starts recording – what ended up being 80, 100, 100, whatever many yeah. songs he wrote and recorded during darkness and ended up with the 10 songs on the record. Yeah. And then, of course, these incredible outtakes. Yes. Like his version of Fire that was a demo for to be Elvis Presley's comeback single on its way to Graceland in August of 77 when he died. Yeah. And so Bruce records darkness and it comes out. In May, uh, in June of 78, and he goes on tour. Now, this is the first time Bruce is playing arenas, not colleges. I mean, he played some colleges on the 78 tour, but mostly he's playing. It was the first time he played Mass Rare Garden as a solo act, which is my first time seeing Bruce. Yeah. August of 78, the first time he played the Garden. And I know a lot of Bruce fans in my age range, that was their first show, too. Yeah. Because, again, he wasn't big in the New York area because yeah. we didn't know his first two albums, only with Born to Run. But because of Born to Run, by 78, he had a major New York following.
0: Yeah.
1: And so uh,
0: – So, so let, me, let, on, let, me, yeah. let me let let me me reset. So I think you've done a great job of setting up what was at stake, right? Like yeah, but this, I'm getting to it. I'm getting I, I'm to get, it. I'm, I'm, I'm helping you reset – the audience. I don't need to be reset.
1: I'm set. Uh, I was building. Okay. Okay. So, yes, he's got something to prove to the rock audience that by 1978 had written him off as a basic one-hit wonder to them. It was Born to Run, Cover Time and Newsweek, Flash in the Pan. Even though no unknown had ever been on the cover of Time and Newsweek to this day – Other than a guy named Bruce Springsteen. So if that wasn't epic enough. So he starts going on a darkness tour. Now. To any Bruce fan that saw the darkness tour. I think I'm not exaggerating when I say. Most of them will say there were nothing like those darkness shows. I've seen Bruce on every tour since the river born in the USA. Blah, blah, blah. A lot of great shows but they all kind of say there was something about those darkness shows. And what was that something? As best as can be described is that Bruce played with this, I call it a hell-bent-for-leather passion and a reckless, wild abandon. And this is true of his guitar playing, which has never, in terms of audio mix, been as upfront in the mix as that darkness tour. The Darkness Tour was about him and that guitar. And one small incident, one of the highlights of the 19th show is the famous seven-minute guitar introduction to Prove It All Night. He's never duplicated that guitar solo since. Yeah, for years he played Prove It All Night after that without the long guitar introduction. A couple years ago, I think he played it a couple times. But in terms of the way that guitar sounded in 1978, I described it in one of my um, essays as like a buzzsaw's berserk uh, drone. Like if you can kind of imagine what that might sound like. And that sound of his guitar. And then not only on the darkness tour itself, but then why this particular show. And why does it forget the fact that I was there in person? It was radio broadcast up and down the East Coast from Maine to Florida that WNAW, the rock station in New York, arranged with John Scher that the first night of three at the Capitol Theater would be radio broadcast. Now, this gets to the heart of answering your question. Remember, I said I'm going to go from macro to micro? Now we're getting to the micro stage. I was there, but I'll talk about that later. The fact that anybody has access to the audio quality of it, which, by the way, Nugs.net, that's been releasing all those Bruce live shows, finally, last year, on the anniversary in September, released that show. But let me tell you something. They mixed it their own way this time. I'll take the original radio broadcast. Why? Why? That was mixed by Jimmy Iovine, Bruce's sound engineer for both Born to Run and Darkness. While he's doing Darkness, he's producing Patti Smith's second album, which is where the whole Because the Night thing happens during the Darkness era. But the thing is, is not every show or every radio show did Iovine mix for Bruce. But the one he mixed for the Capitol Theater And it's because so much was on the line. This was Bruce's biggest audience to date. If you include everybody listening in from Maine to Florida, add it to the 3,000-seat Capitol Theater, and you get Bruce's greatest audience, and it's the New York media world primarily that was skeptical of Bruce, flash in the pan three years ago he knew they would all be listening in to this show to see whether, okay, this guy Bruce Springsteen is back. Let's see what he's about. And this, to me, gets to the heart of why this night that I was lucky enough to be in the sixth row of and experience it live, but I'm telling you, as somebody that's devoured, the audio tape for the last 42 years to somebody that's watched the John Sherr black and white video that exists for anybody to see that was bootlegged for years as a VHS tape of only the first half of the show. And then about 15 years ago or 20 years ago, maybe the second half surfaced, And then it went from, you know, uh, VHS to DVD. The point is, is it's available. Thanks to John Sherr. And the fact that Jimmy Iovine mixed, and this is to me the tale of the tape, because like I said, forget about being there. Audio quality alone, no other Bruce show sounds exactly like this darkness show. And I think the only reason is, is that Iovine mixed it to perfection for that radio broadcast, and the way that sounds, and you can only, in a sense, know if I'm blathering BS or whether I'm telling the truth in a way. Listen for yourself. Have I not heard every Great Darkness show that everybody claims is the Great Darkness show? Have I not been hearing cassette tapes ever since 1978? Oh, the Winterland show is the greatest. Oh, the Agora show in Cleveland was the greatest. Fox Theater, I'm naming all the radio broadcast shows. When you were making a radio broadcast in those days, you were making a de facto live album. Because you know bootleggers were taping it off the radio and getting radio quality soundboard mixed. So Bruce knew on the night of September 19, not only did he have his single largest career audience to date. Think about that, Jesse. When you see the video of Bruce singing these songs on my webinar on September 18th, because I I give you sort of my greatest hits that fit within a kind of two-and-a-half-hour webinar or so, is that he's singing mostly with his eyes closed. There's plenty of times in the show he's directly communicating with the audience like the Bruce we know and love. But most of the delivery of those songs – he knows he's making a live album okay he knows that all the people that wrote him off are listening he knows he's got his biggest audience of his career and when you see him sing on the video of these incredible definitive live versions of his songs not only some of the darkness songs but some of the born to run songs Their definitive live versions, in my humble opinion, are from the September 19th show. Songs like She's the One, Backstreets, Thunder Road. You know, it's the first time he revealed how he came up with the title of Thunder Road in a monologue before the song. And many people who love Thunder Road consider it the single greatest live version. And it's on the night of September 19th. Gee, why do you think, Jesse, he chose to tell the story of how he came up with the title of what many fans consider his greatest song, even greater than Born to Run, not me. I always will put Born to Run number one. But you know many fans rank it higher.
0: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so this is, uh, to reset, um, this is a sample of what you're going to get. On September 18th um, at the New York Adventure Club, it's nyadventureclub.com. Uh, right. We will have a link of the show, Friday, September 18th, 12 noon, Eastern Standard Time, only 10 bucks, And this will get you not only the live uh, v- webinar, but also access to watch it again over For the next week. seven, a week. So... Bring
1: your friends. Have a party. Um, that's Project right. Project it on a big screen. I'm telling you, here's the proclamation now. Here's the showman in me. Because I was there, I'm an eyewitness. I can tell you that the Bruce show sounded like what it sounds like. And it looks like what it looks like, even though it's in grainy black and white video that who knows how many generations down is the version I'm showing by the time I, a fan, got it on the bootleg market. The point is, is I was there. I experienced it live in color, but I'm telling you, there's something about the realness of the Capitol theater video. And this gets into another aspect. I've seen every show that's been documented of Bruce that's made it on the internet or that we used to see on VHS tapes. I've seen whatever is considered, Oh, look at this you know, shot from Paris when he did, you know, working on the highway. I've seen pretty much all the great film of Bruce. And you ready for this? Big surprise. (laughs) The Capitol Theater grainy black and white video is the most immediate, raw document of a guy named Bruce Springsteen. And here is the highest praise I can give it. If the aliens beam down right now in front of me, Jesse, and they said... Arlen Schumer, we've heard you're a big Bruce Springsteen fan. We've got room in our spaceship for one example of why Bruce Springsteen is considered on Earth to be so great. What are you going to give him, Jesse? What are you going to give him? I'm asking you. Oh, I what are you yeah. going to give him?
0: Um, I, based on yeah, by, what you've on, shared.
1: Okay, but based you, on so, what
0: you've shared me so
1: far. Hold That's gonna be. Yeah. And this is why. I'll hand them the video to the Capitol Theater, which also has the broadcast quality, Jimmy Iovine mixed uh sound quality. And I'll say here, this is all you need. This is and that's why God bless John Sherrill for documenting what ended up being for the reasons I claim that Bruce, I think, got together with the band, and I'm imagining this, of course ahead and goes guys this is the big one this is what we've been working on this is what i sweated that lawsuit this is what we're here for this is the biggest night of our careers this is our biggest audience in terms of pure numbers and these are all that wrote me off they're going to be listening the entire record industry is going to be listening so I am going to recreate as a documentarian, in my own words, giving you first the scope of the darkness era that birthed this show, and then I will show a combination of still images and video clips that I've called that I consider the greatest hits of that evening. Enough to fill up approximately two and a half to three hours of an evening with Arlen Schumer, recreating for you, the audience, as best as I can in words and images from somebody who was there, you know, not to switch gears, but there's a famous novel by Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451, classic future dystopian novel where all books are banned and they're burning books and Fahrenheit 451 is the degree that paper burns. That's why Bradbury gave it the title. So, spoiler alert, I never read the book, but I saw the movie once. And you know how the movie ends? And I'm assuming the book ends this way is that they succeed, the bad guys, you know, the government, in burning all the books. But the little bunch of Jedi Knights, so to speak, that were keeping the books alive, they trained human beings to be human books by memorizing a single book. So they became living books. I was in the sixth row of this incredible show. I experienced it as, you know, as close as you can. And remember, it was a small, almost cabaret theater. And I'm in the sixth row. And my art is on the marquee outside. And it was not the first time I saw Bruce because I saw him earlier that summer in August at Madison Square Garden. And I saw him, I think, in Springfield, Massachusetts, in between. But then the Capitol Theater was my third brew show. But I've never been as close as the sixth row ever since. So in my own words, in my own enthusiasm for a show that's been living in me for the 42 years, as close to that Fahrenheit 451 analogy as I can be, is that I have been watching the show, listening to the show, I know every single note of this show, and I've heard all the great, oh, Winterland is better than Capitol Theater, and Bruce fans listening to this podcast know exactly what I mean when I say Winterland, and here's the thing. If you were at the Winterland show, I guarantee you that is your single greatest Bruce show, and you'll say Winterland is the greatest show, but here's the thing. The audio tape exists. It wasn't radio broadcast quality like Capitol Theater. So, yeah, I'll I'll take your word that if you were there. And it was a great show, obviously. But in the court of future rock and roll law, guess what the John Cher show has on its side? And by the way, when you read about the history of the Bible and the New Testament and how certain books after Constantine became emperor and made Christianity for his religion, he got together the Council of Nicaea and they declared which books were going to be in the Bible. There were too many competing versions of the gospels and all these apocryphal books, and they had to sit around and decide which books go in and which go out. And what we've been left with for the past uh, 1600 years or whatever are the decisions that were made. And to me when discussing as music historians of Bruce Springsteen to get serious for a moment, Jesse. When you're presenting in the court of rock and roll law and you're trying to come up with a consensus, okay, this guy Bruce Springsteen, king of rock and roll, greatest live performer ever, five decades, six-decade career, he's still rocking out at 70 years old. But just like the film critics get together every couple of years – And they vote the greatest movie of all time. Now, think about that. How can there be one greatest movie of all time? But guess what? These are esteemed film critics, and they get together as historians and critics, and they hash it out. And by the way, Vertigo ended up replacing for the first time in 75 years Citizen Kane. But I digress. So my point is, just like with the Council of Nicaea, Certain bishops who wielded a certain amount of political power, it was like a caucus, they were able to get what they believed was the right interpretation of Christ in. And it's the same thing. Based on whatever leverage you have, what does John Cher have in the favor that Winterland does not, that Agora Theater does not, that fi- John Cher videotaped the whole show? So, guess what, folks? I'll agree with you. Maybe Agora was a better show, but not based on the audio quality. Yeah. All you right. You listen. Okay.
0: Yes. So, listeners, this is what you're going to get on the show Spirit in the Night, Bruce Springsteen's greatest show. And uh, New York Adventure Friday, N-Y, September 18th. N-Y
1: Adventure, N-Y.
0: NY Adventure Club.com, Friday, September 18th, 12 noon.
1: Eastern Standard Time.
0: Uh, uh, Eastern Standard Time. It is going to be amazing. As you saw, here is just an example. As you can see, Arlen is not shy. Uh, um,
1: Imagine this voice with images and incredible Bruce live uh, film clips or video clips. That will blow your mind. Imagine that combination. Guess what, folks? You can't handle the truth. It's too much Bruce truth. I'm going to be laying down in this webinar the closest you're going to get to stepping in a time machine and going back 42 years to September 19th. Since you can't do that, ladies and gentlemen, coming to my webinar will be the next best thing to being there. Now, was that an ad slogan from something, the next best thing to being there? That may
0: have been. That's good.
1: Yeah. All
0: right, Arlen. I, I hope tons of people turn in. If people, out God's ears. Yes. Uh, go ahead and tell us how we can reach you, uh, because you are not just a one-man band. Uh, no. There is a multitude of stuff available. So let's talk a little bit. Plug your website. Plug your Twitter handle, and uh, then we'll call it a night.
1: Okay. So my website is basically my name, ArlenSchumer.com. Make sure you spell it right, A-R-L-E-N, as a Norman, and Schumer's S-C-H-U-M-E-R, just like Chuck Schumer and Amy Schumer. I'm the unknown third Schumer. You see what I'm saying, Jesse? I do. I'm trying to get on the same platform. I understand, yes, exactly. I'm like the bronze Schumer medalist. They're (laughs) gold and silver. I'm, I'm the unknown bronze Schumer medalist. But yes. basically everything, my book about comic history is linked from my website. My blog page on my website has all of my current events and webinars and links. So uh, my, my merchandise site, which is called popcultureman.com, is also linked from my website. My YouTube channel with videos of my live visual lectures, as I call them, also linked from my website. So as long as you know my website – And NYAdventureClub.com, you'll be fine. But in terms of all other social media, I don't hide behind pseudonyms. I use Arlen Schumer for everything. So if you want to Facebook friend me, because I run three comic book history Facebook groups, one on the Silver Age, which is what my book is about, the 1960s. Oh, did I mention my book is only the greatest book about comic book history, Jess?
0: Uh, You have mentioned
1: that. By the way, I have every book about comic book history. So once again, as objective as I could be, <laughs> yes. it is the greatest book. And by the way, double your money back if not satisfied. I stand by my work, by my outrageous claims. I understand you do. If you buy my book and honestly tell me it's not the greatest book about comic book art ever, I'll I'll give you $100. That's twice the amount of the book. Okay. All right. There and you if you, go. you come to my here. ten dollar webinar and you come away saying, "Arlen, sorry, my mind was not blown," I'll pay you twenty bucks by PayPal. Okay? There you go. I See, love. I'm it. like a used car. I'm like the guy in the TV with those late night ads. You're like, when you not, come to Arlen Schumer, uh, double your money back if not satisfied. I'm trying to do my Bernie Sanders I impression. I, I will double it. your money back if not satisfied. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so. NY Venture Club is all you need because once you go there, you'll see their calendar, which is a smorgasbord of all these different New York City-based historical things. But you won't be able to miss mine because nobody else is doing pop culture. Nobody has the graphics. You'll be able to recognize mine by my name. But what is actually coming up in September is great because in addition – to my Bruce webinar, which is one of my favorite subjects, why the Capitol Theater is the single greatest show, is that that only represents one of my pop culture loves, and the things that I've been in a sense scholar, a published scholar in. So the first up is a couple days before Bruce on the 16th, I'm doing something called Jews in Comics, which is all about the, the very specific Jewish involvement and not only the creation of all of our early superhero archetypes superman batman captain america etc but also the comic book itself was a jewish invention and there was something unique about the jewish experience which comes out of tragedy out of the jewish experience you got the immigrant films you got the immigrant comic strips you got the immigrant entertainment that ended up becoming America's popular entertainment. Modern stand-up comedy comes from Jewish Borscht Belt and vaudeville humor. And where did that humor come from? The immigrants that were coming from the old country where they experienced pogroms and murder and slaughter. I mean, my grandmother had stories of being uh, um, buried under the mattress when the Cossacks came to rape all the Jewish women. And I'm not making this up. But out of tragedy came comedy and Jewish humor. Harvey Kurtzman is the guy that created Mad Magazine. He comes out of this 20th century tradition of Jewish humor. Mad was the first post-war American institution to make fun of American institutions. Out of Mad Magazine came modern Stand-up comedy, it went to Harvard Lampoon, to National Lampoon, to Saturday Night Live. What you know as modern American stand-up comedy comes out of the Jewish experience. And your next seminar? So after Jews and Comics, then I'm doing Bruce. Then a week later, on Thursday the 24th, I'm doing a brand-new webinar on the Enduring Enigma of Roy Lichtenstein. Now, Jesse, do you know who Roy Lichtenstein was? I do not. Have you ever heard of the name Roy Lichtenstein? I have not. Well, guess what, man? You better come to my webinar then. All right. You've, you've seen Roy Lichtenstein's work without knowing the name Roy Lichtenstein. He made famous the look of comic strips with the dots in advertising art like i said you've seen his work on book covers on posters the the giant comic books the woman going oh brad if i showed you these images you would go oh yeah okay well that was this pop art you've heard of pop art yeah well roy lichtenstein is considered the preeminent pop artist very nice that emerged in the 1960s good but here's the problem he is as hated As he is loved. When I say the enduring enigma of Roy Lichtenstein, it's because people 60 years later are still arguing. And it's a comic book thing because he used comic book panels from comic books themselves and he basically turned them into paintings. People think that's pure plagiarism, that it's not real art. And 60 years later, we're still arguing over Roy Lichtenstein. So I happen to be pro-Lichtenstein even though I'm a comic book person. So that's the 24th. Then on the 30th, the last day of September, happens to be the 60th anniversary of my other favorite TV show of the 1960s other than The Twilight Zone. That would be – you ready? Are you sitting down? I am sitting down. The Flintstones. I love the Flintstones. Who else is going to do an analysis, as only I can do it, of the Flintstones? Who else, Jesse? No one else, Arlen. Me. That's it. And then – Even though it gets into October, it's the same week because the 30th is a Wednesday. On Friday, October 2nd is the exact 61st anniversary of the Twilight Zone. Nice. That's my other pop culture love that I'm going to be presenting a verbal visual webinar in which I show how the Twilight Zone was the middle ground between surrealism that preceded it. And then psychedelia, modern art, popular culture, movies. To me, the Twilight Zone is the father of American popular culture. Very Any nice. Any modern science fiction, fantasy, or horror product, I can trace back to the Twilight Zone in less than what I call six degrees of sterling. Yeah. Awesome. So that's an entire smorgasbord of Schumer. Can you handle all that? We
0: certainly can hope Jews so. Jews and
1: Comics, Bruce Springsteen, Roy Lichtenstein. The Flintstones and the Twilight Zone. I mean, are you kidding me?
0: That, that sounds like a full house. Good job, darn, my friend.
1: You're darned too. But I love them all equally. Just like if you have multiple children, you're supposed to love them all yes. equally. Well, I love my pop culture children equally. And when I'm centering on Bruce, I become the ultimate Bruce fan. When I'm talking about comic book history, I become that. Twilight Zone. Absolutely. I become the son Rod Serling never had. So I put the same amount of passion and enthusiasm into each of those subjects. I think equally.
0: Very good. All right, listeners, thank you so much, Arlen. This was wonderful, as always. I enjoy. I voice with you, listeners. Please take care of yourself. Remember to social distance. Remember wash your hands. Wear, Wear an F mask. mask. Wear an F mask as the Bruce says, and take care of yourselves. And we'll talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thanking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast. That is the one, the only Set Listing Bruce. Set Listing Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission.